Pastor Xavier Reese describes the blessings that follow a life driven by faith. Life in the promised land is a life of co-partnership with God. I am not a passive or neutral party. I am active. Faith is always active. I'm trusting God to do the work. God says move. You believe Him, and when you step out, He meets you there. I don't understand it, but that's how He works. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Now what happens if you only eat meat but no vegetables? Never the main course, just dessert. Well, sooner or later, you'll suffer the consequences of living on an unbalanced diet. Today, Pastor Xavier shares what happens when we don't live a life balanced by the whole truth that's found in God's Word. Today's study takes us to the book of Deuteronomy for a message titled, Life in the Promised Land. Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses is calling Israel to hear the word of his mouth carefully, for they would soon cross over Jordan into the promised land. And therefore Moses declares to them five aspects about the life in the promised land in verses 1 through 6. First, it is a life of faith. You find this in the first portion of verse 1. Secondly, a life of trials and testings, the rest of verse 1 and verse 2. Thirdly, the life in the promised land is a life of following God. That's a given. But we get it here in the first portion of verse 3. Therefore, which means conclusion, in view of the fact of what I've said, understand today that the Lord your God is He who goes over before you as a consuming fire. Now, so you don't freak out about the giants, about the walled cities. Your God's going before you. Boy, here's the undergirding, huh? (laughs) You follow Him. Now, if you get ahead of God, then, then I would freak out. And you better be scared. But if you're following God, and I'm following God, then I'm not to fear. I'm not to be anxious. Why? Because I'm following him. He knows the way. Notice first, the believer is to understand that God has gone before him or her. Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, that he might be a faithful high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. He's gone before us. We can come to him. Jesus knows all that will ever happen. He knows the end from the beginning. I don't. So it makes good sense to follow someone who knows, right? Jesus knows loneliness as all deserted him in his greatest hour of need. Now maybe you're saying, well, you don't understand. I'm, I'm single and, you know, I want to be married and, and, I'm, and, and I'm really getting old. I'm 25 and, uh, you know. <laughs> you don't think Jesus understands loneliness? Oh, he understands loneliness more than you will ever understand it. Jesus knows poverty, for his mother offered the sacrifice of poverty to turtle doves. As a matter of fact, one day they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? He says, "Um, someone have a coin? (laughs) Jesus understands. He knows. Jesus knows the heartache of unbelief and death as he came and Mary's words said regarding Lazarus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus didn't weep because he died. 
Jesus wept because of unbelief and because of the consequence and pain of sin, death. You see, we've turned our eyes upon ourselves in the Christian community for all our problems, to support groups, to inner healing, to the child in you, all these sociological, psychological phrases that are anti-biblical and anti-scriptural. And so we have come to understand that we can only be comforted in as far as we can identify with one another. Oh, that is bad theology. I can comfort you not because I can identify with you or even understand you. But I can comfort you because I have the word of God and I can point you to him who's the God of all comfort. He's gone over before me. Notice, secondly, the believer is to understand that God has gone over before him as a consuming fire. He's not only gone before me, but as a consuming fire. The fire represents his protection against the enemy in the land. And so with us. Romans 12, 19 says that vengeance belongs to him. So I have to rest upon him. He takes care of my enemies. He would deliver them all to Israel. He's told them over and over again. He would put dread in their hearts. Their hearts would melt. Such was the report of Rahab when the spies came. He would utterly destroy them. This is his promises now. He would utterly destroy them. So the fire represents first protection against the enemy. But secondly, the fire represents his light to instruct them, and so with us. John uh, 1, 4 through 5 says that Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. And 1 John says that we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have the truth is in us, and we don't deceive ourselves. See, they had his word to live a life that would be pleasing to God. And so do you and I. That's why it's important that you study the Word of God. I can never please God unless I know the Word of God. Absolutely not. How can you please your wife and your husband? Only if you know them, right? They had His Word to warn them. You know, over and over He says, don't do this. Be careful. Beware. He warns them. The Word of God warns me. Over and over again. If I'm not in it, I think I'm Okay. They had his word to approach him. The word of God tells me how to approach God. He says, only by the person of my son, no other way. You see, I have no problem with that when I read it. But if I don't know the word of God, then I think I can come to God any way I want to, any way that I desire to. No, no, no. God will not accept me any way. God will accept me only one way, and that's the way of the cross and no other way. But thirdly, the fire represents the chastening for those who disobey as well as us. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6, the chastening of the Lord to those he loves. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, same thing. Remember Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron? They were consumed with fire from the altar for offering strange fire, Leviticus 10. Let me suggest to you that there are many people offering many strange fires in the church today. Holy laughter. Barking in the Spirit? I'd be satisfied they just walked in the Spirit. That'd be good enough. But why is it that we go after all these phenomenas? All these circus-type charades that seem to build people up emotionally 
and excite them, but they do nothing for them spiritually to mature them, to make them responsible, to make them productive. All of it is me, 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 me. Look what I got. Look what I did. Look what I experienced. Look what this. Look what that. It's a feeling theology. It's not biblical. Miriam was struck with leprosy for speaking against Moses in Numbers 12. Chastened. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land because he misrepresented God to the, before the children of Israel in the book of Numbers as he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. Destroying the whole analogy of Jesus Christ only being crucified once. He struck it twice. You see the life in the promised land is a life of following God. Now, I have his word, right? But you know that God doesn't always speak, right? That's not how he always guides you. The psalm says, I will guide you with my eye. So you've got to keep your eyes on the Lord. Your ear tuned and your eye on the Lord. How are we doing? Are you in step? Are you following him? Fourthly, Moses says that life in the promised land is a life of co-participation. And of course, this co-participation is with God, not with no one else. Verse 3, the rest of it says, He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly. Remember that, quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Notice first that the promise of victory is sourced in God and no one else. The source of victory is sourced in God. God would destroy them and bring their enemies down just as he will destroy and bring down our life of sin, our enemy, down. He says he will destroy that lifestyle. The incarnation was God's way of redeeming humanity from Adam's fall in Romans 5.12. Sin entered in by one man and death by sin and death passed upon all men. The temptation of Jesus is the in the wilderness by Satan was defeated by the weapons that God gave to him. The Holy Spirit, prayer, and the Word. Matthew 4, Luke 4. Those are the weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, Paul says to the Corinthians. They're spiritual, bringing down the strongholds of the enemy. Too often we, we tend to do spiritual battle with carnal weapons and they blow up in our face. But when we do spiritual battle with spiritual weapons, there is great victory. The death of Jesus on the cross was a substitute for the entire world. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The substitute, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He died in my place. He took my place. He was a substitute for me. I deserve to be there. And the resurrection of Jesus was the evidence of God receiving the payment for sins of the world. 1 John 2, 2. And he, Christ, is the propitiation, means the sacrifice that appease and satisfy his wrath. Not only for us, but for the whole world. Incredible. And then the exaltation of Jesus is evident by his position at the right hand of the Father, Acts 2, 33. The right hand is position of honor, authority. He reigns. 
And so the promise of victory is sourced in what? In God. In God. No one else. But notice, secondly, the possession of victory is through faith and obedience. Very real practical. The possession of victory is through faith and obedience. Now you have the two meet together. My sin nature is opposed to the Spirit of God in me. And so I have to walk in the Spirit in order that I don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. They are contrary to one another, Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says. You cannot do that what you would. There must be an all diligent effort to add to my faith virtue, to my virtue knowledge, to my knowledge self-control, to my self-control perseverance, on and on and on. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11. So God is telling me what he can do. I am trusting him for what he says he can do. And then I am stepping out in faith and obeying and God does the work. Co-participation. My sin nature desires to rule my life. Therefore, I must present my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is my reasonable service. For what reason? To not fashion myself to the world system, but to be transformed by the renewing of my mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's the most logical thing for me to do. Because he's the source. He's the only one that can do it. I cannot do it myself. I never did it before I was born again. I certainly am not going to do it in Christ, without Christ. Remember Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 7? He says, that that I don't want to do, I end up doing. That that I end up doing, I don't want to do. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me this body of death? There you have a Christian in perfect defeat. Why? Because he's born again, but he's not trusting for, for the source in God to do the work of God. But he's still attempting to do it on his own ability. Not until he recognizes that in him is not one good thing and he is a dead corpse that he must go into the life of the Spirit in chapter 8. Chapter 7 is total defeat. Christian, not non-believer. Don't let nobody tell you that chapter 7 of Romans is a non-believer. That's a Christian. And then chapter 8 is victory in who? In the Spirit. My sinful thoughts have to be brought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 6. Have you noticed that the minute you get out of, you wake up in the morning, before my feet hit the ground, my mind is already attacked? I have to start bringing my thoughts into captivity? I mean, I no longer, you know, clear the gray haze over my face before I get up that the attacks begin. I have to bring them into captivity, knowing that I am able to stand against the strategies of Satan. Only as I am filled with the power of God, His might, and put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. That's the only way. Knowing that I am born into spiritual warfare, Ephesians 6, 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, dominions of darkness that set themselves in high places. Knowing that Satan goes around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. Ooh. That's why I bring my thoughts into captivity. Because I'm no match for him. But he's no match for Jesus. So what's the key? I have to abide in Jesus. I have to let him live. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. There's the secret. 
There's a commitment. There's a diligence. But also my sin nature wants to excuse me or justify my failure. But God tells me I am equipped for all that will ever come into my life. The way of escape is promised, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has ever overtaken you, such as common to man. But with every testing, he will show you the way of escape. Every way. The divine nature is given, 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4. A divine nature, great and precious promises. For everything pertaining to life and godliness. Life includes all of my existence and how I can respond and live godliness. That's a promise. But then also the practice of making provisions for my flesh is to fulfill the lust is exposed in Romans 13, 14. How? He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So when I fail, I can usually look back and see that I didn't put on Christ. If I don't put on Christ, what do I do? I make provisions to fulfill my flesh, right? Now, has God shortchanged me? No way. Can I blame everything on Satan? No way. Do you see how you're a co-participant with God? God says, move. You believe him, and when you step out, he meets you there. I don't understand it, but that's how he works. And so life in the promised land is a life of co-partnership with God. I am not a passive or neutral party. I am active. Faith is always active. Always. Even when I'm exercising faith to trust God and I'm, I have the peace of past understanding, my faith is active. I'm trusting God to do the work that he's told me. It's not passive. Now notice fifth and last. Life in the promised land is a life of potential danger. Potential danger. You have this verses 4 down to 6. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast him out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me into the possession of this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving you out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of, their, of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God has not given you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Is God repeating himself here? He tells them the same thing three different ways. Now, you can appreciate this if you're parents. And they still blow it, huh? Here's the first potential danger. To be deceived by my heart, which is deceitful and desperately wicked. The first portion of verse 4. Jeremiah 79. Deceitful and desperately wicked. To be deceived by my heart. The heart, as we have discussed before, is the very core of man. What he is. How he thinks. The heart is the source of man's defilement. Jesus said, Matthew 15, 19, that's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes forth, fornications, adultery, so on and so forth. The heart has been man's problem from the beginning of the fall. Genesis 6, 5 says that man, he, God saw the, the, the man that his imagination was evil continually from his youth. It has never changed. It has never stopped. 
There's the first danger, to be deceived by my heart, which is deceitful and desperately wicked. Oh, watch your heart. Guard it well, as the proverb says, for out of it come the issues of life. Second potential danger. Verse 4, the middle there, and beginning of verse 5. To think that God has cast out others and brought me into my spiritual possession because of my righteousness that I have done. My righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6 says. So that will help me understand that it's not because of what I've done. There is none righteous, no, not one, Paul says in Romans 3.11. The righteousness that is brought forth in my life is due to the work of God in my life, Romans 6.15-19 through 19 says. Now I am a servant of righteousness, slave, no longer a slave of sin. And so it is Christ that brings forth this righteousness. So once I get that perspective right, then I, I, I have at least a protection against this potential danger. See, sometimes I think, well, you know, God has saved me because, you know, no, no, no. God has only saved me because I repented and his grace fell upon my life. But God has not blessed me because of my righteousness. Never. Otherwise, God would be a debtor to me. God is a debtor to no one. Here's the third potential danger. It's also found there in verse 4, the latter portion, in the middle of verse 5. To fail to understand that it is not for the righteousness that I have done, nor the uprightness of my heart, but because of the people's personal evil. You see, God has rejected some not because I'm so good, but God has rejected some because of their personal evil. You see, this is proper perspective. This is good. And I can't exalt myself over them because I'm just as evil and I'm just as bad. And I'm just as lost. The only thing is I've repented by His grace. Every person must give an account to God for himself. No one can give an account for anyone else. Every person must choose between God's standard of perfection or this perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There's only two choices. Perfection or the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Every person will decide whether they're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. Not by chance, but by choice. By choice. But there's one more potential danger. And you find that in verse 6. To fail to understand that we are stubborn and rebellious. Mm. The reference to stiff-necked is to one who is resistant and reluctant to obey. When an ox or a mule or a horse stiffs their neck, they're rebellious. The reference is to our sin nature and what we are apart from God. We're enemies. We're rebellious. The reference is to give us true perspective so we do not deceive ourselves. So important. So important. And so life in the promised land, lastly here, is a life of potential danger. Man, do you know how rich we are to have all this counsel, to know all this? How it helps us live life out so much better, so much easier? So much safer? Moses has given to us five aspects about life in the promised land. They are all applicable to us in Christ. First, it's a life of faith. Second, a life of trials and testings. Thirdly, a life of following God. Fourthly, a life of co-participation with God. Fifth and last, a life of potential danger flashing red lights oh 
you have a better understanding of life in the promised land, it will help you tremendously. Meditate upon these five things and let God search your heart. Pastor Xavier Reese with the five things that accompany the life of those who are faithful to God's leading. And you can request a copy of today's hopeful study appropriately titled Life in the Promised Land. You can pick up a copy for just $4 on CD. And this will also contain what we heard the last time we were together. So the title to ask for once again is Life in the Promised Land. Or simply mention today's date when you write Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make a request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And it's always helpful when you tell us the call letters of this station when you contact us. Sin is sweet for a season, but what happens when reality sets in? Join Pastor Xavier Reese as he brings us the simple truths about our choices. And that's next time. Hope to see you then. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California, www.calvarychapelpasadena.com. 